0: Well, there is snow on the ground. At least there was a little bit ago. I'm sure the sun's out now. But uh, there was snow on the ground when I drove here this morning, and it's mid December, and so it's officially starting to feel Christmassy to me. The days leading up to Christmas are a time of great anticipation for many of us, not for all of us. For some, it's a time of almost dread. It's painful. can be difficult. Many are somewhere in between those emotions, and they're simply going through the motions, along for the ride, doing what they have to do, but they feel nothing. It means almost nothing. Just imagine if the month of Advent was not one month long, but hundreds of years. What would change about this Christmas season if somehow you found yourself trapped in that time between mid-December and Christmas, trapped there for a very, very long time? I know it's impossible. It sounds like the making of a new cheesy Christmas movie. But just try to imagine it. What would change? What feeling or dynamic would get amplified if the couple weeks before Christmas weren't a couple weeks, but many, many years. Christmas time is a time of waiting. It's a time of great anticipation, perhaps especially for kids. It can't come soon enough. And again, for others, it can't come soon enough for other reasons because it's painful, because it's difficult. And for others, still, they're just numb to it all, indifferent. You can discern which of those fits you best, if you can imagine the month of December that never seems to reach Christmas. Remember that in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, it opens with it being always winter and never Christmas, also called Michigan, I think. Well, we're in the book of Malachi today. The book of Malachi is important for all these experiences and feelings that we're talking about, anticipation and dread and and going through the motions. It's the last book of the Old Testament for a reason. It's the most recent of the Old Testament books the closest to us it's a bridge of sorts it's a bridge between the last prophet of the old testament and the next prophet who will lead the way before jesus comes that prophet being john the baptist in the new testament malachi brings the waiting and anticipation of the entire old testament to bear with bated breath but that's just the thing It actually addresses a people who have long since lost any bated breath. And so it doesn't feel very Christmassy. It's the Old Testament book closest to the coming of Jesus. And as you'll see today, it doesn't feel very Christmassy. It'll feel a little bit more Christmassy next week when we're in chapters 3 and 4. But this week, chapters 1 and 2, it doesn't feel very Christmassy. Last week, after I announced that we would be in Malachi this week, my wife read through Malachi and then said to me with a smile, Did you read Malachi before you said you were going (laughs) to preach it for Christmas? I did, but she's partly right that it, it seems bizarre. But it's addressing people who have simply been going through the motions, and I think many of us can relate. Malachi is written after God gave his people that 70-year time out in Babylon. They have since come back to Jerusalem, just as God said they would. They were disciplined for a time, but not cut off. They've been brought back. Ezra led the way and led the way to rebuilding the temple. Nehemiah came a little bit later, and he, he helped build the walls around Jerusalem, by the time the writing of Malachi happens, the priesthood has all been restored. The sacrifices are now back to being sacrificed. We don't know how long it's been since these things have been restored, and now Malachi writes, but it could be years, it could be decades, but you get the feeling they're quite used to it. It's the same old, same old stuff. They're yawning at the sacrifices. Their waiting is done in the sense that they're no longer in Babylon and now they're back home. But the waiting is far from done, the end is not yet. The promises are not yet all fulfilled. God's people in the days of Malachi, they might be back home geographically and yes, they might have the temple and priests in place, but they have very little of even their former glory let alone the greater glory that some of the prophets had recently been talking about. In these days of Malachi, there was no Israelite king. The people were allowed to return to their land, allowed to return to their land. Now they're under Persian rule. Their territory is a postage stamp compared to what it used to be under David or Solomon. There is no Israelite army. And yet, this was God's plan for the time. This is what God had for them. Can you already hear some similarities that we Christians might share with these people in Malachi's time? We are no longer waiting for Messiah to come. Jesus, the Messiah, the King, has come, and yet he'll come again. So we still wait. It's not done. He's not done. We are not there yet. So how's it going as you wait? How's your waiting these days? Some today wait with biblical anticipation and excitement for the return of Christ. Some, I'm sure even Christians, would simply dread that day which will be the final day. And many of us today are simply waiting, going through the motions. We're numb, we're indifferent, we're careless. And that's a scary place to be. It's a scary place to be if we learn from what Malachi the prophet says. And let me warn you in advance that what God says through the prophet Malachi, it's heavy, it's a burden. It says in verse one that this is an oracle. Literally, the word means burden, something to be carried. The prophet is carrying the word of the Lord and carrying it to the people of the Lord. His name, Malachi, means messenger, and he has a message. Let's read the first chapter of his message. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi I've loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I've loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I've laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down and they will be called the wicked country, And the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where's my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, How have we despised your name? by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. From the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations." And in every place, incense will be offered to my name in a pure offering, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted, and its fruit, that, its, that is its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or is sick And this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. We'll stop there for now. Malachi is structured... According to strategically placed questions, rhetorical questions, there are are six of these kinds of questions in the four chapters, it goes like this. God speaks to the people or to priests, and then he anticipates their response in a question form, and then he responds to their question. He answers their question with either more evidence or with further rebuke or with an appeal. We've already seen in chapter 1 two of those kinds of questions. One is in verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, "How have you loved us? Ch- chapter 1, verse 6, the priests despise my name, but you say, how have we despised your name? There are four more of these. This week and next week we'll study this book together and take them just one question at a time. The first, how have you loved us? That's the first question. How have you loved us? Verse 2, it doesn't start there, though. It starts with God saying, I have loved you. This has to be the sweetest and most tender of beginnings of all the prophecies of the Old Testament. But how quickly it turns from sweet to sour. God says, I have loved you, but they say, and perhaps this was what Malachi heard when he preached this material to the public. He had heard these questions of protest, of argument. How have you loved us, they said. They doubted God's love. And God, in his love and mercy, he answers them. He answers their question. He could have taken them back to Deuteronomy where there were so many declarations of God's love for his people or or when he does this or that, it says in Deuteronomy, because the Lord loves you. God could have taken him back to that that Old Testament phrase, steadfast love in our English Bibles. God's covenantal love mentioned hundreds of times in the Bible. But instead, God took them back To a fork in the road in Genesis 25, where God chose Jacob and not his brother Esau. This is how it reads in Genesis 25, where the Lord said to Rebekah, their mother, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger." There, that's the choice. The older shall serve the younger. The younger one will be the blessed one. That will be the line of the heritage of the promises of God for the people of God. Now, that's not the way it's supposed to go, humanly speaking. The line of blessing, humanly speaking, was to run through the eldest son. And that's the, that's the thinking of Isaac, the father of Jacob and Esau, who wants to bless the eldest Esau. But that wasn't God's plan, it wasn't God's choice. Why? Well, we don't know why. We know some reasons why not. God's choice of Jacob and not Esau wasn't because God looked into the future and he saw in Jacob someone who would be nicer, kinder, gentler, more pliable to God's plans and purposes. No, Jacob was a rat, a sneak. He was sinful. Jacob was chosen by God in spite of everything in him, in spite of what he would do, not because of anything in him or what he might do. This is God's sovereign electing love that we just sung about. And it runs through all the Bible. Why Abraham? Surely there were other people around. Why Abraham? Because he was so good? Oh, no, we could read some very bad parts about the Abraham story. Why Isaac? Why Jacob? Why Israel, the nation? Why not two nations? Why King David? Why Solomon? Solomon wasn't the oldest. Why you? Why me? It surely wasn't because I was smart enough to know that God's grace was a good thing. It's certainly not that I'm spiritually inclined or spiritually sensitive by nature that I saw in Jesus a Savior. It's because God opened eyes to see. The Apostle Paul actually quotes this little bit here in Malachi 1 when he writes in Romans 9. And listen to how he unpacks it further. In Romans 9, verse 10, Paul says, When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac... Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, Genesis 25. And then here, verse 13, this is referring to our passage in Malachi 1. As it's written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Now this is heavy stuff. This is wonderful heavy stuff. If this is new to you, just please know that This is one of many things that we're going to try to study in the first half of the book of Malachi today, and we can't take the time to anticipate and answer every good question that could be raised about something like this in the Bible. I'd encourage you to study it more if you haven't, to get a good book from our book nook on this, or to to look for a sermon on our website uh, on Romans 9 that could be helpful in thinking about this more. But starting with what we've just read, with Romans 9 and a little bit here in Malachi, let's let God's word speak and let's let it stand on its own without apology. Perhaps it can be useful to think of marriage. What is marriage but a unique unparalleled love on one individual apart from all other individuals. That's what marriage is. When I proposed to Sarah, I chose her out of all the women of the world. And by doing so, I was essentially saying no to all other women. Not that any others were wishing me to do something else. She was the only one willing uh, that I knew of, but it was the one I wanted. That's the nature of choice, isn't it? By choosing one, there is implicit a rejection of the others. I didn't truly hate all other women on the planet, but the difference between all other women on the planet and my wife is such a difference that it can be described in those sort of black and white terms, love and hate. That's not a perfect illustration of this doctrine, but it highlights some aspects of it. Now, back to Malachi 1, this little thing from Genesis 25 of God choosing Jacob and not Esau, God applies that to his listeners who doubted his love for them, and he's reminding them that that choice is still in effect. God is saying, Do you want to know that you're loved? We'll look at Edom, the nation that came from Esau. Just look down. You can glance in, in your Bible, verses 3 to 5 there, as I paraphrase some of that. Isn't God saying here, when Edom gets attacked, they may say, oh, we'll rebuild. And they may actually rebuild. But God hasn't given them promises about rebuilding. God hasn't removed his anger on that sinful nation. And we know in just point of fact that Edom did die out. There's no Edomite nation today. Even using their later name, Idumea, they fizzled out as a nation and eventually as a people. And God is saying to Judah here, when you see that, you will say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. The great and global God is also our God, the electing God, the choosing God, the saving God, the loving God. You will know there's a difference. You will know that I love you. I'm not done with you. You might wonder about my love after Babylonian captivity, but that was part of my love for you. It was discipline, And now that you've returned to the land, you might have expected bigger things to happen right away, but I'm not done. I do love you. And the Lord will be great beyond the borders of Israel in ways they never could have imagined back here in Malachi's day. So the answer to that question, how have you loved us? Is this? It's the same for us if we're Christians. God has loved us with an electing, covenantal, pursuing love that is not according to merit. Jacob's sin couldn't shake God's electing purposes. Your sin couldn't shake God's electing purposes if you're his. Carl Bart was probably the most influential theologian of the 20th century. He was a creative theologian, for better or worse. Um, He was brilliant. One of his students once once asked him, Dr. Bart, what is the most profound thought, the deepest thought you've ever had? He replied, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. I have loved you, Christian, God says. I still love you. I have loved you. Don't doubt his love for you if you're his, if you're in Christ, if you know his mercy in the gospel. We can look back to all kinds of statements of God about his love, times where he's proven his love or examples of him showing his love But we can also look ahead beyond Malachi's time to remember that Jesus came. He came in love for us. He came for us and for our salvation. We can look to the cross and recall verses like Romans 5, 8, that God demonstrates his love for us and that while we're sinners, Christ died for us. And yet this truth cannot in the least bit lead us to to indifference, to coasting. In the doctrine of election, there is responsibility. And election implies relationship. Israel was to be, and Christians today are to be, not just God's chosen people, but God's changed people. There's responsibility. There's relationship. And that's what the rest of Malachi builds upon. The rest of Malachi is basically a rebuke, but it's built upon this promise of love, and it's for the purposes of further love. It's built upon that electing love that, that implies relationship. And that's why I can go on to argue like this. Verse 6, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? If I'm a master, where's my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you. So now we come to the second question. How have we despised you? That's what you see at the end of verse 6. You priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised you? Well, we've already read the answer. The priests had despised the Lord and polluted him, it says in verse 7, by offering polluted food in their worship. They offered not unblemished animals as the law required, but they offered their blind animals, their lame ones, their sick ones, or ones that they could steal from others. They offered what cost them nothing. And their offerings that cost them nothing indicated what they thought God was worth. Sacrifices in the Old Testament weren't there to buy God, to pay him off. Yes, they pointed ahead to something more substantial and permanent in the New Testament. We'll get to that in just a bit. But, but they had their place in their time. God said what they should be. And to cut corners was to disobey him and not just disobey him, but to cheapen him. It was to despise him. That's a principle that even applies in the civic arena. You see in verse 8 where God says, present that to your governor, your Persian governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Can you pay your taxes with a blind, lame sheep? No. If you were to visit the Oval Office, Would you come with the thank you gift of a blind, lame goat? Could you show up to your office Christmas party with this gift, a blind, lame goat? That would be the worst white elephant gift ever. (laughs) It does no one any good. It only requires responsibility to take care of the blind, lame goat. Well, if you know that you can't give like that to your, to your governors, to your bosses, why do you think that you can give to God your leftovers? What costs you nothing? The scraps of life? What is otherwise useless? This is a hard issue. It was a hard issue. They... With whatever they gave, blind and lame though it was, they found it wearisome. Verse 13, but you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it. And God would rather have none of their sacrifices than to have these leftover sacrifices, these half sacrifices. Verse 10, oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors to the temple that's sort of what Jesus did when he cleansed the temple in John chapter 2 remember that temple worship had become useless once again it was bare minimum religion and Jesus came to bring a kind of religion that was far greater than the temple at its at its peak at its glory day he came to bring a religion that's not on that mountain or that mountain, but is in spirit and in truth, and it's everywhere. And that's what Malachi brings up in the next verse. Verse 11. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering, for my name will be great among the the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Do you hear how radical that is? At least radical for its time in Malachi's day? In the old covenant, incense wasn't to be offered in every place, but in the temple. And so here we have a hint of what's to come when Jesus comes. Malachi preached that God's praise will one day be continual. From the rising of the sun to the setting. It will be global and universal. From the farther reaches of the, to the west and, and, and to the east. That's where this is going. That's where it's already gone. That's where it continues to go. This continues to happen as the gospel of Jesus Christ goes forth in this world. His name is being made great among the nations. And there is continual global praise. And it's not done yet. It's got to keep going. It's got to keep going until Jesus says, that's it, that's the plan. I'm done and I'm coming back. The gospel, what we call the good news, is not that we can learn how to make sacrifices that please God, but that Jesus God in the flesh has come as the true and final sacrifice. And the ones of old, the sacrifices of old, had to be unblemished precisely because Jesus was the unblemished, perfect sacrifice. And he was unblemished, not just skin deep, but to the core. He was perfectly righteous through and through. And therefore, he is the true sacrifice, the final sacrifice, the one that finally worked. It was a costly sacrifice. So we read in the New Testament, Ephesians 5, that Christ loved us and he gave himself up for us on that cross. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In Hebrews 9 we read that he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. In Hebrews 10, we've been sanctified, sanctified, rather, purified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The sin of the priests in Malachi's day were a real problem But even if they had been at their best, there was still a problem for which unblemished sheep would never be a solution. Even the best priests of the Old Covenant could never take away sin. And so Jesus was not just a perfect sacrifice, but a perfect priest. Hebrews 7. It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Do you believe that? Have you come to understand that savingly and know that it's yours? Have you come to believe that what Jesus did on that cross that day, he did for you? He did something for you and for your guilt. You could believe that today. Call out to him in faith. Turn from sin and cling to him as your only hope. He's the only sacrifice. He's the only perfect priest. And yet let's not lose sight of where we are in our study of Malachi. Just because there was no perfect priest in the old covenant... And just because there would one day be a final priest who would truly fix the sin problem, that doesn't get the priests of Malachi's time off the hook. They were still to blame for their sins. And again, precisely because the true and final priest was still to come, and precisely because they were foreshadows of that great priest making sacrifices of that great sacrifice still to come, Precisely because of all that, God intended for them to be holy, obedient. So let's read on in chapter 2 now, still under this same question. How have, you dis- how have we despised you? Chapter 2, verse 1. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart, to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts. Then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned away many from iniquity. From the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and the people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You've caused many to stumble by your instruction. You've corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. You see here again how at root it really was a matter of the heart Their sin was not a matter, really, of blemished goats and sheep, but blemished hearts. Their cheap sacrifices were the fruit of the problem, not the root of the problem. They hadn't taken these matters to heart. Chapter 2, verse 2, they are now needing to take it to heart to give honor to his name. It's a matter of the heart. They had not walked in covenant ways with the Lord as Levi did long ago. The covenant with Levi, verse 5 says, was one of life and peace, a covenant of fear. He feared me. He stood in awe of my name. He walked with me in peace and uprightness. And these priests in Malachi's day had lost all of that. They had done none of that. They found their work to be wearisome, and they snorted at their responsibilities before the Lord. Their bare minimum worship betrayed their perception of a bare minimum God. God is the Father. He's the master. He's the great king. He is to get his honor, his fear, his awe, his universal and constant praise. And that's why leadership of God's people is such a weighty thing. Because when leaders go astray, oftentimes the people do as well. The priests should have guarded knowledge, it says in chapter 2, verse 7. The people should have sought instruction from them. But these priests had been buffeting God's truth and God's instruction. It caused many to stumble. With loose living and loose practice, often comes eventually loose thinking, loose theology, loose believing. It's a darn good thing we don't live in these days. It's a darn good thing that we Christians are not priests. That we don't have that kind of responsibility. It's a darn good thing that the true priest has come, that the sacrifice has been made, that there are no more sacrifices to make. It's a darn good thing that being an old testament priest has nothing to do with us today. Does it? Is that it? Is that what Malachi is about? Bad priest long ago, no relevance for today? No, 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 this passage doesn't just show us an Old Testament problem and point ahead to a New Testament solution, but it also warns us and instructs us in an illustrative sort of way. Remember that Jesus spoke of those who honor him with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. That's what the priests were doing. The Apostle Paul spoke of those who had an appearance of godliness, but lacked the power of it. Remember that Jesus addressed seven churches at the beginning of the book of Revelation. And all but one of those seven churches received some rebuke. Christians are forgiven, and Christians often need correction. One of the churches in Revelation there had lost its first love. Another one tolerated false teaching. Another tolerated sexual immorality. Another one had stopped growing spiritually. And another was lukewarm. And neither hot nor cold. Which one of those ...might apply to you, which of those, plural, might apply to us. We can be forgiven of those sins and yet in desperate need of the Lord's correction. We can be guilty of our, of chintzy sacrifice. Of half-hearted worship. Of bare minimum obedience. Of being weary with worship and giving and serving obedience in worship didn't get any easier in the new covenant as i read this passage with my kids a couple days ago i said worship back then was easy and they all said what no way cuz you had to kill stuff and it was that's costly and it's hard and you got to go into jerusalem to do it and my wife even said it wasn't easy back then but it, but it, in the sense that it it was just Checking boxes. You could do it. Jesus shows up and says, It's in spirit and in truth. He gets down to affections. Sacrifice isn't to be made when you do sin, or once a year at the year of at the Day of Atonement. But but Romans 12:1 says that we're to present our whole bodies as a living sacrifice, ongoing, daily, constant. Holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. 1 Peter 2, you're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What great privilege we have in the gospel What great responsibility we have. It is no bare minimum religion. This is no going through the motions kind of religion, but constant, universal, in all of life, costly, reflecting our global, glorious God, the King. Let me ask you a hard question Why did you come here this morning? Is it because it's just what you do? It's routine. You did it last week, you'll probably do it next week. Is it because, well, if you didn't come, your wife would give you a talking to, or at least give you that look. Did you come this morning to see friends? to not feel alone, these aren't all bad, but they can't be the sum total of our motivation for worship. Have you come this morning just for a little (laughs) pick-me-up? Sorry to disappoint you, we're in Malachi 1 and 2. Did you come to maintain a certain reputation with others? Did you come this week because it happens to be a convenient week to go to church? Next week, eh, we'll see. Or did you come this morning to sing with the saints and to worship the living God? The God before whom the nations are nothing. Governors are nothing. Kings are nothing the one to whom all fear and awe is due. How did you enter this room this morning? That's a way to sort of get at the heart of our motivation, what we we think we're doing when we worship. When people have prayed this morning in this service, did you you pray with them? You closed your eyes, did you think of something else? Where did you meet with and in your mind talk with, assent to, things said to the living God? Well, let us listen to God's word and take it to heart and not despise his name, not pollute his worship. And when we do, let us always remember. That when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. The third question in Malachi. Why doesn't he accept our worship? Building upon the second one. So this one will go more quickly. You see in verse 14 that question. Why doesn't he accept our worship? Let's read it in context here. Starting in verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts, And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, here's the question, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. With wayward priests, with cheap worship, with selective instruction, there is a trickle-down effect into the very home for many people in Judah. (coughs) Judah's faithfulness, uh, faithlessness, led many to abandon the covenant of marriage in divorce. As it says in verse 12, they did this in order to marry the daughter of a foreign God. The problem that Malachi is addressing here is not just divorce, but divorce and marriage to idol-worshiping women. Why does he not accept their worship? Well, because they had abandoned that covenant of marriage in order to marry godless pagan wives, and all of this was further corrupting the worship of God in the temple of God. Wives are to be companions. Weddings are covenants. Malachi gives us such a rich and beautiful description of marriage in verse 15. Didn't God make them one? With a portion of the spirit in their union. And what was the one God seeking in marriage? What's his purpose for marriage? Godly offspring. Marriage is to be a picture. An illustration of God's love and covenant with his people. And God doesn't abandon his bride. And so men should not abandon their wives. Yes, the New Testament speaks of a couple ways in which divorce is permissible. In the case of adultery, it's permissible. And when an unbeliever no longer wants to be married to a believer, then that believer is free. But Malachi isn't concerned with special cases like those. He was confronting the faithless acts of men who were abandoning their covenantal marriages for convenience. Perhaps because Persian women can be pretty. Who knows? They were marring the picture of what God and his people are to be and how God is as a husband. Marriage is for him. It's for procreation, multiplication, and it's for the propagation of God's ways in this world. It's for godly offspring. Let me ask you another hard question. Why get married? Why did you get married if you did? Why will you get married someday if you will? Why? Why get married? For the sex? For me, for fulfillment, to be normal, quote unquote, as culture tells us? Well, these are not good reasons. God has bigger purposes than this. Godly offspring are a big part of it. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless, it says. Guard yourself by right now resolving, if you've never done this in your marriage, resolving that divorce is out of the question. It's never going to be on the table. Guard yourself by doing more than just saying that divorce isn't an option, but instead daily grooming that relationship, cultivating that companionship. Single people, those who will one day be married someday, if that's you, guard yourself with a resolve that you will never, you will never enter a romantic relationship with someone who's not a Christian. Paul is very clear about this in Second Corinthians 6. He says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Marrying the right kind of person is a big deal. And staying married to the right kind of person is a big deal. And to be faithless in our marriages can even affect our worship. Why doesn't he accept our worship? Well, because you've got this glaring thing splitting homes, partnering up with idol worshipers. Guard yourselves, do not be faithless. The last question, the fourth for today. How have we wearied you? The last verse of chapter 2. You've wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied you? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Think about that, God being wearied. Wearied with their words. Wearied with words of complaint and protest. You can imagine that the context, the situation in which Malachi was writing and, and preaching there, he, it was no doubt relevant to this specific question that they had. Remember that God had promised big things after that exile in Babylon. They'd now returned to the land. The temple was rebuilt, rebuilt but, but it was puny. The older folks who remembered the first temple, when they saw the second temple, they wept, not with tears of joy. Under Persian rule, now a microcosm of the size and strength that they once had, no Davidic king on the throne it would seem as though the promises of God have flatlined at this point. You can imagine the temptation to say, where is God? What is he up to? What timeline is he on? Where is justice? Sometimes the Psalms ask that kind of question. Why do the the wicked prosper? There's a righteous way to wonder that to ask God about that. In days ahead in this country, we Christians, we may find ourselves asking that question more than we have in the past. Why is it that the wicked prosper and Christians are persecuted? But there, let's be careful, there is a godless way to ask that. Where is the God of justice these people asked? And the Lord was weary of it. There is a way to ask that that springs from cynicism, springs from pessimism, that is by nature accusatory, and it wearies the Lord. Now chapter 3 will go on to more fully answer this question of where is the justice? So we won't answer it very much this week. But how we get there in the story is by reading on. The question of where is God and where is the justice is one not to sweep under the rug. It's one that's answered as we read on in the story, both in Malachi 3 and that to which Malachi 3 points, as we'll see next week. But Malachi 3 will tell us about the justice that's to come, or really the one that's to come, God. He's going to come. In Jesus, he came. And he's coming again. It is for him that they really were waiting, even as they were going through the motions. It's for him that we wait. Let us not go through the motions. Let us remember that this is his plan. What we read in chapter 1, verse 11... For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name, God says, will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord. Christians, as we wait on him, let's not doubt his love. Let's not give him half-hearted worship. Let's not go through the motions Let's give him his due in all of life and all of worship with all of our affections. Let's not give up on marriage. Let's not enter into marriage covenants with unbelievers. There's too much at stake. Let's not question God's justice. Let's wait patiently for what's next. And when God comes to us and speaks to us A word of correction, as he has done this morning through Malachi, as he will no doubt do again someday. When God speaks to you a word of correction, a rebuke, let us not question him. Let us not argue with him. Let us quickly relent and repent because he's the king. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the king, that you reign, and that you will reign forever and ever. Right now, we don't see that reign, but one day we will. We will see you face to face. We long for that day. Help us, we pray. Help us now as we sing, to sing in spirit and in truth. Help us to sing about you, Lord, in a way that is not just singing, but is indeed worship, that is fear, that is awe, that is giving you your due. You are great among the nations. Amen.